um, as we gather here together today, um, we have a lot in common, all of us in this room. Um, first of all, you're here today. Congratulations. That's one thing in common. Uh, one of the things that I think is just fascinating are the things that we share across the board, across humanity. One of those elements that we all face that's just a common thing for every human being on this planet, we tend to bond over fear. Fear. Fear tends to be one of those things that just uh, solidifies a bond when we have common and shared fears. And in fact, um, if you think, well, I don't like to be afraid, that's um, not true, I think, for many of us. Um, in fact, there are places that people go for the purpose of being scared, and we call them amusement parks. Um, I grew up in the shadow of uh, Sandusky, Ohio. Uh, my parents to this day live less than 20 miles from a place in Sandusky, Ohio, where people pay money to go get scared. Anyone know what that's called there in Cedar Point? Oh, I just did it. Ah! So you guys, I've already done this once. So I'm, my brain's gone. Cedar Point. Who's been to Cedar Point, right? You get these roller coasters, the self-proclaimed roller coaster capital of the world. Um, and you go on these top thrill dragster or whatever these rides are. You pay money to start screaming your head off as you're trying to figure out if you're even going to survive the next 60 seconds of your life, right? In fact, that's not the only area that we find ourselves enjoying being startled. In 2022, so just last year, one of the highest grossing genres of films was horror. $13 billion in revenue in the horror industry. And that's not including films that would be considered uh, thriller movies, which are uh, a neighboring genre, which grossed $20 billion. And so um, we spent $33 billion on just in movies to scare us. How incredible is that? Um, a few years ago, the Washington Post listed some of the most common phobias. They, they put out a survey, and the most common phobias, they came up with 10 of them that many people share. Number 10 was darkness. How many are afraid of the dark? Wow, you guys are, oh, okay, all right, I see one, all right. You guys are braver than the first hour, all right? The first hour, I was ready to have them turn off the lights just to see who reacted. Um, darkness was number 10. Number nine, zombies. I'm not kidding. I did not make up this list. Zombies. Um, I'd be afraid of zombies. Um, number eight, strangers. Strangers. How many of you are afraid of strangers? How many of you, how many of you will not raise your hand because you're afraid? that? Anyways. Number seven, flying. Flying. You know, some people that are afraid of flying makes you a little bit anxious. Um, small spaces is number six. Small spaces. I am right there with you. That's why you guys are out there and I'm up here. Okay? It's far away from you. I'm just kidding. Um, number five, blood or needles. Anybody have like a, not just I dislike needles, I am afraid of. Okay, all right. Number four, drowning. Drowning. So <laughs> I heard, I heard some of you, that's your, that's your fear. Number three, bugs. Bugs. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. Number two, heights. And again, people sp spend money to go experience heights. Okay, number one fear of people polled by the Washington Post. These are phobias. These are the more irrational fears, if you will. Um, not saying that they're, anyways, you know what I mean. Number one fear. Who wants to guess? They guessed it right in the first hour, I'm just saying. 
You ready for it? Public speaking. So statistically speaking, there are people in this room who would rather drown than come up here and talk. How incredible is that? Number one phobia that was listed. Um, and while phobias are these like often like irrational, like it kind of makes us anxious, oftentimes they're not uh, things that we ought to actually um, truly fear. Um, Chapman University, they put out a survey every year, and um, I encourage you to track along with it. It's really interesting. Last couple of years, I've been following some of these shifts and how they relate to us as Americans. So specifically Americans, our greatest fears, they've divided them up into five categories. Economic concerns. This is the fear that we won't have enough money for the future, a fear of economic collapse. Um, some fear environmental concerns, like a lack of clean drinking water. Some fear war, biological warfare, another world war. Uh, one that's uh, interestingly specific was that Americans tend to fear Russians using nuclear weapons. In 2022, these were the top fears that people in America claimed. The second highest category was the harm of a loved one. Having a loved one get sick or pass away, become seriously ill, was a great fear for the majority of Americans. And number one is actually an interesting one to me. Number one kind of stands alone. Corrupt government officials. That was the number one fear, 60-something percent said corrupt government officials um, on this list. So these are the fears, though, that Americans said that they had. And if you're like me, at least one of those fears, if not more, kind of stand out to you. You say, yeah, you know what? Um, yeah, there's, it's scary. Some of those things ought to cause us to be afraid. And today you're probably thinking, okay, Nate, all right, um, happy Easter, talking about our phobias and our fears. Understand this with me. The Easter story, fear is an inseparable part of it. Fear is an inseparable part of the Easter story. See, in Matthew um, 25, 26, 27, some incredible events have taken place in the lives of Jesus and his followers. Just a week before Jesus and his disciples enter into the city of Jerusalem, the capital of Israel, the religious center of the Jewish people. They come into this city, and Jesus enters on this donkey. He comes in, and the people come in droves. They throw palm branches on the ground. They take their jackets off, and they roll out the red carpet, so to speak. And as they're doing this, they're crying out over and over and over again, Hosanna! Hosanna, which it means this, save us, save us, save us. And so this whole time as Jesus is coming into town, they're crying out, save us, Jesus. Just days later, just days later, the religious leaders would take him and bring him before the Roman governor of the area. In the middle of this, they say, this Jesus, he's stirred up the people. He's causing problems. He is declaring himself to be a king. And the fact is, is what's incredible about these accusations is he did declare himself to be a king. But they didn't understand that this was not just any earthly king. He was the king of kings and the Lord of all lords. 
But they took him. They arrested him. They had him beaten. He was mocked. And even in the middle of all of this, they take a crown and they say, oh, you're a king, huh? Here's your crown of thorns. Oh, a king needs a robe. And once they had beaten him, they take a robe and they place it on his back. And if you've ever uh, skinned your knee and then the next day you got to put a pair of pants on and it's a little bit raw still, just uh, think about that feeling. Now it's your entire back because this robe has been thrown over him as they're mocking and they're laughing, throwing a scepter, a reed in his hands, and then taking it away from him and striking him with it. Oh, Jesus. Oh, you're the son of God. Tell us who hit you. This cruel mocking that they subjected him to. Then they lead him up to a place known as Golgotha, the place of the skull. This was an intersection of sorts where people would pass by on the roads as he is hanging there, hanging on not only to this cross, but onto his life. We find then that after a few hours, Jesus dies. Some of his followers, they come and they take this body off of the cross, which, understand, this would have been a bold move by these followers of Jesus. Because when they're going to Pilate, who's the governor uh, in the area, when they're going to Pilate and asking for the body of Jesus, they're saying, hey, that guy who has been declared a traitor to Rome was our friend. And so this is a terrifying thing even to begin to do. The Romans would never release the body of a convicted uh, man like this. They would go immediately in a mass grave. They were not human. They didn't deserve to be buried and to be remembered. But Pilate allows these men to take Jesus. Pilate understands his innocence, allows himself to be drugged into this and become complicit with the murder of Jesus Christ. And now he is placed in this tomb. But as he's placed in the tomb... This tomb was not like a burial that we would have today. This tomb would have been cut out of a piece of, of a large area of stone. A trench would have been dug that a round stone would have been allowed to fall into place, being relatively easy to put in front of the tomb, but very difficult to remove. But that wasn't enough for the religious leaders. They went to Pilate and they said, we need men to stand guard to make sure that his disciples don't try to steal this body. Pilate says, you've got your own men. You make it happen. And so they do, they appoint a guard, and there are those who are guarding now this body of Jesus Christ. Where are the disciples in the middle of this? Matthew doesn't explicitly reveal this, but um, other gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the stories of the good news of Jesus, these other authors record for us that the disciples, they were hiding. They were afraid. Remember this man that they had associated themselves with for three years has now been convicted of treason, the highest crime against Rome. They were afraid for their lives. They had followed him. Now he is dead, and they're expecting that it's going to be them next. Fear was an integral part of this story. And as we come into Matthew chapter number 28, these fears, they are living in the middle of these fears. This was the worst weekend that they could have imagined. They never, they did not see this coming. This was so far removed from their minds. And yet now this is where they find themselves. In Matthew chapter 28, the Bible tells us after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And verse 2 kind of gives us a little bit of a rewind. This has all taken place before 
this instance. Behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven, came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, his clothing white as snow. For fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. And so as these women come up to the tomb, what do they find? They find, as they begin to get close enough that they can see it, there's an opening beside the stone. The stone's not where it was supposed to be. Not only that, but they see this man sitting on top of this stone, and guards nowhere to be found. Perhaps when they came closer, they found the guards still present, um, having passed out from their fear. Um, before we judge those guys too harshly, let's just, there's a, there's a, think about all that's taking place here. There's an earthquake and then someone descends and he's got a, he's, he's like lightning is how he's described. Okay. And he starts moving this stone on his own, rolling it away from the covering of this grave. I'd pass out too at best, at best. <laughs> but what happens here? I, I love this interaction. And this is where we're going to spend the next few minutes that we're together. You see, the angel has a few specific phrases, a few specific words that he has for these women. And in fact, he gives these three commands to these women, and they follow them out, and it's incredible to watch. But I think these are things that so plainly apply still to our lives today. Verse number five, the angel said to the women, do not be afraid. Can you imagine these women? They were probably a little anxious already. We're going to have to deal with guards we're going to have to go up and say, yeah, we're followers of Jesus. We're just here to prepare the body. See, the body had been buried rather rapidly because Passover was coming, and so they had taken this body off the cross, and they had hurried through to make sure that it was prepared as much as they could, but they couldn't interfere and interact with this dead body once the sun had gone down because of the Passover laws and religious rituals. And so they're doing all of this stuff as quickly as they can. Coming back, we'll finish in a couple days. And that's where they found themselves. And so now, as they're coming back, to finish the work that begun just a couple days before. They're anticipating this interaction. And when they get there, they don't find guards. They don't find a closed tomb. And in fact, all they find is one guy sitting on top of this stone. And so imagine the uh, uh, anxiety, the reservation that maybe these women had even approaching this place. But as they come here, what do they see? They see this man in first words out of his mouth. Do not be afraid. For I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. The angel tells these women not to fear. Why does he have to do that? Well, because God's work can be frightening. God's work can be frightening, but you don't need to fear it. You don't need to fear it. You see, God's work can be, um, so it's a scary thing. Perhaps you're one of those, you're uh, afraid of thunder and lightning, realistically, what are the odds of actually being struck by these things? And in fact, thunder has no power in and of itself, right? But it startles us. We are easily startled creatures. And so as we look at God's work, it can be frightening, but you don't have to retreat and run away from it because God's work is frightening, not because it's hostile, but because it is powerful. Maybe you've spent time um, around some sort of um, explosives through work or through um, some type of learning experience. And the fact is, is that these things are powerful tools. Maybe your only experience is like mine. You saw it on the Discovery Channel. But what happens? 
These men, these women that deal with these high explosives, they'll be so careful and so intricate, so detailed in the way that they go about making sure all the fuses are correct, making sure all the barriers are put up so that they can safely detonate this explosion for whatever purpose they are guiding it towards. Are they afraid of that power because that power is hostile and wants to kill them or harm them? No, but they've seen its power and they know it can And so even so, as we behold the way that God works, one of our natural responses to that is fear. It's fear. We look and we say, wow, God, you are powerful. You are strong. You are capable. You are able. And it gives us some anxiety to see, wow, what you can do anything. But even as the angel comes out and he speaks, the angel says not to fear. Why? Why do we not have to fear it? Because this is power that is in responsible hands and it's precise power. In fact, the author of Hebrews writes this, and he says that the word of God is like a two-edged sword, and that it pierces even the thoughts and the intents of the heart. It is a precise power. It knows you better than you know yourself. You see, God is not throwing this around foolishly. God understands how and where and why this power is being used. But even as we behold this earth-moving work of God, we don't need to fear. And the fact is, is that as we behold the resurrection, what power is there that can kill death itself? And so we behold the mighty, awesome, awful power of God, but even in the middle of it, we are told not to fear. But watch what happens next. In verse number six, the angel says to these women, he is not here, for he has risen as he said. Watch these words. Come and see the place where he lay. I love that. Because what is this angel doing? The angel is inviting these women to come to see the work that God is doing. Understand this here today. God still is inviting you to see his work. God is inviting you to see his work. Throughout the scriptures, we see over and over and over again the invitation to come. And the fact is today I can stand up and I can tell you about how Jesus has impacted my life. I could tell you about my family's history. I could tell you about my homeless alcoholic grandfather and how God saved members of my family, how they came to know Jesus. I could tell you about the chains that were on so many lives and how now there are those that are taking the gospel of Jesus to multiple places around this world as a result of the good news of Jesus and the transformation of those lives. I can testify of the power of God within my own life. Others can testify of all of these things, but at the end of the day, you need to see it and experience it for yourself. Um, I've heard it said that God doesn't have grandchildren, and I think this is what that means. You are the one responsible for your faith in Jesus Christ. You say, well, I grew up around good people and godly people. I had godly parents, and they loved the Lord. Good. I am so glad their faith isn't bringing you to God. You have to make the decision to follow after him. And the angel says, hey, Jesus is risen. And he doesn't say, just take my word for it. What does he say? He says, come and see. Here it is. Behold for yourselves. And today, uh, we want to invite you 
to see the work of God for yourself. Can you imagine being born blind? Could you just picture with me for a moment, closing your eyes if you need to, hearing others describe the beauty of colors and of nature while you have no real experience with it? Can you imagine someone sitting there and telling you how blue and vivid the sky is or describing the sunset and the different colors that are composed? Well, you have no idea what a color even is. This is something that you have never been awakened to because your eyes were born closed. You don't see it. You know it's exciting for someone else, but it's never affected you. So often we allow this to be our faith. We allow someone else's faith, we praise it, we, we admire it, we encourage it in them, but it's never actually impacted us. Can I tell you, that's not what God desires for you. Even as this angel sat and invited these women to come and see the way that God has transformed this, God's inviting you to come and see, to experience it for yourself. You see, when Jesus meets a blind man through Scripture, it happens a few different times. You know what he does? Every time. He heals them. There's never a blind man that met Jesus and walked away blind that we have a recording of at least. So if it happens, we don't know about it. But we know multiple blind men that he ran into, and they all walked away healed. And Jesus, even now, is inviting you to come and see. We're going to see that in just a moment. Once these women see the things that have just taken place, they're not just taking angel's word. They go in, they behold this empty tomb. This is where our body was laid. We know he was here, and he's not any longer. What do they do next? Watch what happens. Verse number seven, the angel says, Then go quickly, tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. Behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. See, the fact is that once you have seen it, once you have experienced the grace of God, you can't unsee it. You can't unexperience it. Once it's happened in your life, once you've watched this work, it changes us. And in fact, what's the natural response to any kind of good news? What happens when good news becomes our good news? What do we want to do with that? We want to go tell other people, right? Oh, there's so often, we just, we can't keep it to ourselves. Can you just imagine these women? I had a funny thought this week. I'm just picturing these women. Uh, after this has all happened to them, could you just imagine if they went back to the rest of Jesus' followers and uh, began to speak with them? And they came in the door, and they didn't say much. And so maybe Peter or John, one of these guys, says, Hey, um, hey Mary, did you, guys, did you guys go to the tomb? Yeah. We went to the tomb. What an unusual response that would be based on what they had just seen. Well, um, did you talk to the guards? Nope. Didn't talk to them. Okay. Well, no. What did these women do? When they saw this good news, when they experienced it for themselves, when they understood that Jesus was alive... We've got to go tell people. And so they take off. But this is just like you and I. We want to tell people when we get the job, when we find out that we're expecting, uh, when we find out that, hey, the cancer is gone, you're getting married, you're graduating. Maybe some of you, you're just celebrating because you're just still here. Congratulations. You're alive. 
you made it to Sunday. The fact is, is that regardless, we want to celebrate with good news. And the truth is, is that good news is not meant to end with you. The good news is not meant to end with you. You see, when we come to Jesus Christ, when we are saved, we have a choice to make. As we place our faith in Jesus, his intent for us is to be a conduit for God's grace, to be a conduit for the good news of the gospel. Where the gospel is poured into us, this water of life that Jesus describes in John chapter 4, it flows through us and it goes on to the place that it is destined to, that it needs to go. But too often, we believers of Jesus Christ, we allow ourselves to be a cap on the work that God is calling us to do. And when it's time for the gospel to continue to go forward, we say, oh, well, I mean, it's gotten to me and that's far enough. But could you imagine a life where the person who brought you to Christ or introduced you to Jesus or invested in your life, what if that person had decided that they were just going to let the gospel end with them? Well, your life would be a lot different, wouldn't it? And we praise God that he knows and he sees and places those people in our lives and that you are here today for one reason or another because someone has invested in you and loved you enough to share the good news of Jesus Christ with you. Because you see, all of this stuff makes a difference because we understand through Matthew's writing and through other places in the scripture that you and I, we are all sinners. That means this, we are separated from God. We're far from him. There's a chasm so wide that we have no hope of getting across it by our own deeds. We can't be good enough. But in the middle of all of that, Jesus Christ came. And Jesus Christ, he never sinned, never did wrong, never did anything that displeased God, never broke any of God's laws, never once, if you can fathom that, lives his whole life. And yet this innocent man is crucified, he is killed. Why? For us. He allowed himself to go to the cross so that you and I, through faith, can have salvation. John would write it this way in chapter number one of his gospel, the gospel according to John. He says, but as many as received him, Jesus, to them, he gave power to become the sons of God. We can become the children of God. How? By being so good, by going to church and doing the godly thing. No, as many as received him, he gave power to become the sons of God. So what does it mean? It means to receive, to accept this gift that has been so freely given. You see, in this moment, these women, they, they saw this empty tomb and they said, this is the best news ever. This changes everything. This changes everything. In this moment, they go from fear to faith, hopelessness to hopefulness. And so they leave this place. Watch what happens in verse number eight. They departed quickly from the tomb with fear. And great joy. And they ran to tell his disciples. But watch this. Before they can even get there, behold, Jesus met them and said, greetings. I just love this. They're running by, and we don't know exactly how Jesus met them, if he was off to the side or if he was in front of them. Uh, but they're running by, and Jesus says, hello. Excuse me. <laughs> what? <laughs> he says, greetings. And what do they do? I mean, that's all that Matthew records that he says. 
They came up and they took hold of his feet. They worshiped him because they knew it was true. And now they see him with their own eyes. Then Jesus says to them, what? Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. And so Jesus reveals himself. And what does he say to them after hello? He says, don't fear. Go and tell. You know, the only of the commands of the angel, the only one that Jesus doesn't repeat is come and see. You know why? Because they saw. It's too late. They're witnessing. They see it. But everything else, he says, hey, listen, don't fear. Don't fear. Now it's time to go and to tell others about the work that is taking place. So Jesus reveals himself. See, today, there are legitimate reasons for fear, like public speaking. But you also have a reason for hope. And can I tell you, I don't know the circumstances of your life. I don't know the things that are taking place in front of you. I don't know what exactly you are personally, individually walking through. In fact, many of you I met for the first time this morning, or I still haven't met yet. But the fact is, is this still remains true. Your sin has separated you from God. Your sin separates you, puts you in eternal condemnation. But Jesus steps in and took your sin and took mine to the cross with him. And now today, you can put your faith in him. You can be forgiven. You can be made right with God by receiving this gift of the gospel. A fancy word meaning just this, the good news of Jesus Christ.